UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres has reacted to the decision by the U.S. to halt funding to the World Health Organization, saying now is not the time to make such a move amid the coronavirus pandemic. And the Mineral Resources and Energy Department has denied giving permission to Impala Mine at Rustenburg in the northwest to operate at full capacity during the lockdown. Details with Khobedi at 9. The COVID-19 Ministerial Advisory Committee chairperson, he has um, no doubt um, put a lot of years and time into working and studying and dealing with all types of infectious diseases. I mean, for example, um, if you look at the research and the contribution he's made in the HIV prevention and treatment in South Africa, I mean, that's just one of the many things the professor is recognized for. So he's a South African clinical infectious diseases epidemiologist. If you have any questions around the COVID-19 as a virus, how it spreads, how it behaves, the impact of lockdown, I mean, even how we compare to other countries in terms of the trajectory of the number of positive cases, absolutely any question. We'd love to hear from you. 089-110-3377. We're seeing a lot of tweets coming in as well, which is great. So we'll read some of those out as well. There are some common questions, so we'll bundle those up and ask it as one. But anything you'd like to know about COVID-19, we'll get into the Q&A session with the prof next. Rim, the COVID-19 Ministerial Advisory Committee Chairperson. Professor, good morning and welcome to the show. Good morning to you and your listeners. I was watching your presentation on the news networks the other night and I thought to myself, gosh, I missed the lecture room. I think I need to enroll for some <laughs> other course soon. Um, just you explaining COVID-19 at different levels. I thought it was a brilliant presentation. It was simple, easy to understand. And often these viruses and, and the likes are often complex uh, in some instances, but you did a sterling job. So we thought it would be key to bring you uh, back to the uh, spotlight here, Professor, and just uh, get a bit of a Q&A session going with, with our listener who perhaps from that presentation between you and the health minister and other uh, professionals and professors and panelists um, have come up with more questions around COVID-19. I suppose one of my first questions, just to open it up, would be the impact of the lockdown. You did mention in your presentation that we are succeeding in flattening the curve. But is that all we need to do? Yes, yeah, so it's quite a complicated uh, set of uh, uh, issues that we're dealing with here. I think the, one of the important things to uh, come to terms with is that when we see a case today, that actually is telling us about an infection that occurred about two weeks ago. It's not exactly, it's some variability, but about two weeks ago. So when we are checking on cases, what we actually are doing is we are looking at infections that occurred two weeks ago. So when I tell you that on the 26th of March, the number of infections started to go down, and that thereafter, for the first two weeks after the lockdown, the number of infections has steadily declined. I'm actually not telling you about the infections after the lockdown. I'm telling you about the cases after the lockdown. And that tells mm-hmm. us about infections after the state of 
disaster. So what we have seen in the first two weeks is largely a function, not solely, but largely a function of the state of disaster, which was closing our borders, hand-washing, mm. it's about social distancing, closing the schools, stopping worship, and so on. So all of that is the benefits we've seen in the first two weeks. This week, mm. which is now the third week after the stay, after the lockdown, we will begin to see the full effects of the lockdown. And that's left to be seen. We don't know what that is yet. Mm, indeed. All right, Prof, um, I had promised uh, my listener that we would uh, make you available, and I don't want to take up too much of the the time here. So we'll go straight to the phone lines. We've got Juju on the line. Juju, good morning. Morning, Mo. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you. Thanks for calling in. What is your question to Professor Salim Abdul Karim? Yes, thanks for taking my call. Morning, Prof. Um, just a good morning. one, Prof. I, I hear everybody on um, the media, the news, is talking about this possible second wave of the corona. Um, I just want to find out from Prof, what is your take on that and what are the chances of us seeing that? Yeah, I'll listen sure. on radio. Yeah. Okay, so when we look at the South African epidemic, I explained on one of my slides that the current uh, epidemic comprises three waves. We have the first wave in the travelers, we have the Mm. second wave in the contacts of the travelers, and then we Mm. have the third wave, which is community transmission. The lockdown was principally to stop community transmission, and that's what we're trying to measure. All of the things we're trying to do is to measure community transmission because that's what defines whether we are succeeding or not. If you look at the countries that have already been past the the bulk of their exponential curve, in other words, they finish have that drastic effect that we've seen in Italy, in New York, in China, then what happens is that the country, uh, the the number of infections goes down. And you've got several people now who have immunity. In other words, they had the viral infection. They now have antibodies to the viral infection. And enough, if enough people have antibodies, the virus can't spread. It's the same, the same effect we try to achieve with the vaccine. So when we give children measles vaccine, we are hoping that if measles starts spreading, it won't be able to spread to many people because they are vaccinated. Now, with the coronavirus, we don't have a vaccine. So we depend on natural immunity to reach that same stage. Now, what happens is that when you've had this epidemic and a certain number of people have these antibodies and you go back to your normal life, you end your lockdown and you go back to your interactions with people, then we are worried about the second epidemic. And in China, that's what they are seeing. So because their first epidemic is over, because they got the epidemic before all of us, they are now seeing the second epidemic. And the second epidemic is from travelers. So now people from Europe coming into China are bringing the European virus into China. They don't have the local transmission. They have now a second epidemic from that. So uh, the second epidemic is, we are a long way from that. Right now we are concentrating on our main 
part of the transmission, which is what is happening in the community, what is community transmission. Mm. All right, we're going to go to another call, Professor. We have Gahiso on the line. Gahiso, good morning. Morning, Mo. How are you? Very well, thank you, sir. Go ahead, Professor is here. Morning, Prof. How are you? Good morning. Good morning. Morning, sir. So I went through your slides, and um, I was just saying, okay, it took me, you know, it's a bit, it's it's all, it's not too complicated, but a lot of people are simply unaware of what's happening still in our, you know, rural township areas. How do you, how would you convert that information and get it down to the basic minimum? so that anyone can understand. And secondly, I just want to say, um, has our unequal imbalance in the country actually contributed towards a slower rate of spread of the virus? For example, we have pre-apartheid spatial planning in rural areas and whatever. So people are generally more far apart from the first wave, which was the travelers, as you said, and the second one, which was the context of the travelers. So these people are obviously, you know, uh, people of a higher socioeconomic um, what what compared as compared to sure. you know people in rural areas and townships. So has our pre-apartheid spatial planning actually contributed to um, the virus spreading less as compared to in Italy where they are first world mm-hmm. countries so they they were generally prone to spreading it amongst themselves easier. All right, Kaki, so great great question, I think. But let's see what the professor says. Thanks for the call. You know, I don't have any evidence to say that it's due to this or to that. I have to start off with that. Uh, so I've got no real evidence to show you that uh, it's due to spatial planning or it's due to anything in particular. So now that I've told you I don't have any evidence, I will tell you about my speculation. And I want you to understand it's speculation. So it's prone to failure and it may not be true. Mm. When I look at many of the societies that have had rapid spread, it's often important to have quite a homogenous Uh, and well-distributed middle class because you need the the epidemic to transition from travelers into the general population. Remember, other than China, every every other country has to have the, the virus brought to them by travelers. So if the travelers and their contacts do not interact with the general population enough, we may not see that same kind of spread that we saw in Europe. So in South Africa, it is possible, and I say I have no evidence for this, it is possible that our apartheid structure has led to a situation where those who traveled got infected in Italy, in the UK, in Europe. When they came back, they simply did not interact with enough people and spread it to enough people. So where would those people come from? Those people would be people they interact with at work, at home, in the buses and taxis and trains. So if they're not interacting with enough people in those different areas, then we won't see 
enough transmission occurring. So it is possible that our apartheid spatial distribution may have contributed to this current situation where we are, where we saw the introduction of the virus, but we're not yet seeing the full force of community transmission. Remember I said we have a difficult truth, and that difficult truth is that it's almost inevitable that we are going to see that exponential curve. So there's no room for complacency here. Mm-hmm. With regards to your first question, it was my responsibility as the chairperson of the Ministerial Advisory Committee to try and make sense of the situation we find ourselves in. What do the data tell us? What is the evidence? And how do we interpret that to understand our current epidemic and what we should be doing to deal with the epidemic. And to use that information, I have a committee that, you know, that the minister has put together of over 50 experts. We have, and our country is so fortunate to have the brains trust of our country available at hand at any time to be able to give the minister and the Department of Health any advice that they need. That's my job that the minister asked me to do. I didn't ask for that job. He asked me to do it, and I do it with pleasure. Now, Mm. when we do that, and we provide it to the minister, the president and the minister felt that we needed to take the country into confidence and to share with them how we are using information and evidence for what we are doing. That was my job. I did that. It's now every other person's job to take what they know, that they have now been empowered with this information, and to now share it with everyone else. Each person who heard my talk should be an ambassador, should be a person who says, I now need to take responsibility for sharing this and making it available to everyone else. At the same time, the Department of Health is looking at translating some of this, creating it in a much more simpler way, and to make it more generally available. Mm. We're joined on the line by Professor Salim Abdul Karim, the COVID-19 Ministerial Advisory Committee Chairperson. We're talking all things COVID-19, and we've got a couple of tweets here, Prof. Uh, I'll get through one or two. There's one here coming from Olani Mgomezulu saying, since there are high numbers of positive cases in Johannesburg, Eguruleni, and Tswani, how much screening and strategic testing is being done per day? Do you have those figures? Ah, that's a good question. I actually don't have the latest figures. I only have it up to Friday last week. And Mm. the minister shared the most recent data uh, on that uh, during our briefing on Monday. And I think he quoted a number of 460,000 people have been screened. And Mm. uh, I don't yet know how many tests were done and I don't know how many were positive. But you only need to look at the increase in the daily number of tests, in a daily number of tests and the daily number of positives to see the impact of this community screening. Because the number of cases has just been going up, as it should be. So don't get worried. 
we expect the number of cases to go up when we go around and actively look for people with the virus. Mm-hmm. When we actively mm-hmm. look, we must find them. If we're not finding them, then we're failing in our job. Yeah. All right, here's another one. Paul Silike says, um, is it airborne? And what will the impact be during winter? So there was some uh, issue about whether this virus would survive our summer. And I think we've eliminated that issue because it survives pretty well in our summer. And of course, it survives quite well in our body at 37 degrees Celsius. Mm-hmm. Now the question is, will it survive the winter? Well, it impacted Italy in their winter. So we anticipate that this virus is really not being impacted by the weather. It survives just as well in the winter and just as well in the summer. The winter has an additional problem. And in the winter, we traditionally get our influenza season. So we, we usually get in June, July, our spike in flu cases because influenza spreads much more rapidly in the winter when people are enclosed and much more indoors. And that that situation may also apply to the coronavirus. We don't know that for sure. I don't know what whether there's enough evidence to make that conclusion. But mm. seeing that both are respiratory viruses, it is likely that we will see more corona transmission during the winter than we said than we saw in the summer. We're almost out of time, Prof. I didn't even realize it's almost nine. But one uh, consistent question has come through via the cure. People want to know, Prof, why do we not have a cure yet? What's your whole answer to that? Well, we did not know as a world, all of us in this world, simply did not know this virus even existed before the 19th of December. This virus is completely new. Nobody had encountered this virus before. So we simply did not have a treatment for a virus we did not know existed some four months ago. So now that we know it exists, there are huge efforts led by the World Health Organization, led by uh, research institutes throughout the world to find a treatment. And I can assure you, that there's huge amount of effort going into that. All right, Prof, we are out of time. Um, as you can imagine, there are truckloads of questions coming through, but I do understand you are on Twitter. Um, your handle is at Prof Abdul Karim. Am I correct? Yes, but I'm, I, I can't deal with Twitter. I'm, I'm old school. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I just when I get a chance, I look at it. But don't expect me to answer on Twitter, please. All right. Well, that leaves us with one other option, uh, Prof, to bring you back sometime soon. Only with pleasure. All right, perfect. Thank you for your time, Professor Salim Abdul Karim, COVID-19 Ministerial Advisory Committee Chairperson, giving us uh, some insight into COVID-19 and obviously that wonderful presentation.